Today we're going to think about some unlikely topics that relate to our salvation, that relate to Jesus. The unlikely topics are wine and temples. We don't usually think of wine when we think of Jesus and we think of our salvation, unless we're having communion. Kind of spoils my sermon introduction. Apart from communion, we usually don't think of our salvation relating to wine. We don't think of Jesus' saving work as the King of kings and the Lord of lords as relating to wine. Especially if we're fundamentalists. But in John chapter 2, we're going to see that Jesus' saving work is related to wine. And we're not talking about communion. And even if you don't like wine, I think you'll like Jesus. The second topic is temples. Now, if you know the Bible very well, you've been a Christian for a long time, you've been an avid reader, you know that Jesus relates to temples. But if you're newer to Christianity or brand new to Christianity, you think temples, especially living in the 21st century in Omaha, Nebraska. Temples? I don't think about temples related to Jesus. I don't, I, I don't know very many temples. And when I do see a temple, I stop the car. I say, kids, look at that. They're like, Dad, what is it? That's a temple. Oh, it looks scary. Right? It's this weird thing. It's not something we would normally in Omaha, Nebraska, 21st century, think of, oh yeah, Jesus. But in John chapter 2, wine, Jesus is the Savior. Huh? Temple, Jesus is the Savior. What? But we'll see both of those things with some excitement. So we've got some, we've got some learning to do, um, but it will be yet another avenue, a couple of avenues, toward helping us to see Jesus for who he really is and to see that he's actually better than we think he is. Okay, so that's where we're going. And I've already pretty much resigned myself to the fact that we're not going to get to the temple part. So I chose the wrong scripture reading for the wrong day. God help us, literally, right? We are celebrating the Lord's Supper today. Uh, we are going to eat and drink in remembrance of him, um, the one who is a perfect savior, an unmatched savior, the one who calls us to rest not in anyone or anything other than him because his work is sufficient and done and he gave himself up for us so that we might be forgiven and restored. Okay, So that will be our, our culminating high point after we talk about wine in a different context. So John chapter 2 is our text. We're going to work our way through it and see that Jesus performs a couple of major signs. Specifically, we'll see one this morning. And if you're trying to read through all of John, the first half, let's say, roughly, of John is dedicated to a series of signs. Okay? Proofs, if you will. Evidences. Jesus is 
proving when he came to earth, and John spells it out this way, through signs, through miraculous things, that he is the one who we've been waiting for. He is the one who is the long-expected ultimate David. He is the ultimate deliverer. Okay, And I'll use deliverer and savior quite a bit uh, interchangeably, and I try to do it more and more because we hear savior all the time, and we kind of check out and we don't think about it. And we think king, savior, they're not related. No, in the ancient world, actually, they are related because if you have a great king who's victorious, he delivers you from bondage. You're free. He saves you. Okay? And so here Jesus, King Jesus, is victorious. He really is the one he said he was. He really is the long-expected deliverer king. He's the savior. Okay? So let's go ahead and start in John chapter 2, and let's see Jesus, sign number 1, turning water into wine. Verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Here we go, sign number 1. Cana in Galilee, Jesus' mother is there. I don't want to do geography 101 every week but at least to acclimate ourselves. So close to where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, it's a little bit to the north, okay? So I'm not a geography person, um, and it's not all-consuming to me, but it does help me to think, okay, to the north in Israel, you've got Sea of Galilee and the Galilee region. To the south, you have Dead Sea, okay? And if you work your way to the west, to the coast... Whether you're in the north or the south, you get to the Mediterranean Sea, okay? So if you're looking at a map, and maybe I should put one up here, but I can remember better if I don't have the map, okay? Mediterranean Sea is on the left, and to the north, on the upside of things, you have the Galilee region, Sea of Galilee. Then you have the Jordan River that flows from it down to the south, to the bottom of the map, and you have the Dead Sea. Now, if, you work your, if you're up in the Galilee region and you work your way toward the coast a little bit, you're going to get to Nazareth. You're going to get to the rough area that we're talking about today. If you are down below by the Dead Sea and you work your way toward the coast, you're going to get to Jerusalem, which I thought we were going to talk about today. Cana is what archaeologists tell us and map experts tell us roughly eight miles from where Jesus grew up, okay, from Nazareth. So you're to the north. If you go much more to the north, you're going to end up in Lebanon, okay? So to the north, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and Cana, from the best we can tell, is about eight miles, just up a little bit more and in a little bit more, okay? North and to the east. If you go to Israel today, they might take you to a place they'll tell you is Cana, where you can buy wedding wine, okay? And from the best we can put pieces together, that's not this Cana, okay? It's a place to buy wedding wine, okay? And when your guide takes you there, when you, he'll be the last one out, or she will be the last one out of the room, and you'll buy all this stuff, and you'll think it's wonderful and great, because maybe Jesus touched these grapes, or I don't know. And then your guide will leave last, so that store owner can give him a cut, because you are a sucker, <laughs> can't believe I said that in church, but it's true. So it's, it's an interesting experience. I've been there, all that kind of stuff. But this Cana is a place we know about. 
Okay? It's an archaeological hotspot, but it has not been excavated. Now, does that really matter? No. What really matters is it really happened in a real place, as I emphasize all the time. Okay? So here they are in Cana, in the region of Galilee. Today they might even call it the Galilee. It's that general kind of area, northern region, close to Lebanon. Then we have verse 2, Jesus also invited, was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Well, that would make sense. I won't pause every time we read a verse, I promise, but that would make sense. If Jesus grew up in the general area, and maybe it's an fa- extended family, maybe it's a family friend, for whatever reason, it would make sense if Mary's invited and she's from the area, and now Jesus is invited and his disciples are invited too, and so they're going to go to this wedding. It's not far away. Seems like they knew the people based upon what Mary's going to do. It seems like, again, we're reading in the white spaces a little bit, but it seems like she's involved somehow helping. Just like you might ask a friend or a family member to help at a wedding if they're not involved in the immediate party. Mary feels responsible for things. So it seems like they're, they're, they're close enough for that to be happening. Isn't it interesting that Jesus goes to a wedding that Jesus is there with his disciples, that helps us to know that Jesus wasn't some kind of ascetic. Jesus, Jesus wasn't some kind of uh, person that wouldn't involve himself in culture, wouldn't involve himself in social kinds of things. He wasn't a monastic. He wasn't part of the secret Qumran community where if you're really godly, you isolate yourself from anything that might be fun. He's not that. And actually, that ends up being important when we're trying to think through Christianity and we're trying to think through Christ and what he did and what he didn't do. Then verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And why does she do that? Well, because they don't have wine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she feels responsible for whatever reason. She probably doesn't say it because she expects Jesus to do a miracle. How can we know that? Because this is the first sign. It wasn't like Jesus was, has been doing all of these signs, and so Jesus, Mary's like, I know how to solve this. You just whip up some wine. He speaks things into being. We have no reason to believe that because this is the first one. This is, this is the entry point. But what we do know, again, reading in the white spaces putting the pieces together, we do know that Jesus was reliable. We do know that Mary's husband is not somebody we've heard about for a long time. It appears as if he's been dead for a long time. No sign of Joseph. Jesus is the oldest of the brothers. Mary would have relied upon him quite heavily and had grown to be able to do that. So I think it's best, and others would say it as well. The reason she says, look, they don't have any wine, Jesus, because Jesus, as her oldest son, by the way, who's perfect, will know what to do. He's the family problem solver. Jesus, there's a problem, there's a crisis. The family will be shamed. The name will be defamed. These weddings could last, the celebrations, up to a week. We don't know where we are in things, but, but something's got to be done. Jesus. So I, I would prefer to read it in more of a natural kind of way. 
verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Implied answer is what? Nothing. This doesn't have to do with me. Now, do you think he's being harsh or not? Regardless of what you say, there's somebody to support your view. We don't, we don't know. Probably it'd be wise to be balanced about it. He's not going to be ungodly and, and, and blast his mother who he's called to love. But for sure, there's some kind of distance going on. So gentle rebuke. Whatever it is, there, there's been a line crossed. And so there, there's pushback to his mother. I can't believe I probably read 50 pages trying to sort out the emotion involved here. And pretty much people say, we don't know. At the very least, one person said, it establishes polite distance. That person should be a politician, I think. Not particularly endearing, need not be harsh. Okay. We know he cares about his mom. From the cross, he's going to care for her in John chapter 19. But at the same time, she's not his peer. She's not his authority. And she is not in charge of the time clock and what's unfolding because something is unfolding. It's according to plan. And she is not the fourth person of the Godhead that knows about the eternal decree. Right? Not even close. And this helps us to see that. Jesus' mother, whom he loved, seems to step over the boundary a bit here, and Jesus gives her respectful pushback. Just as a cross-reference, we don't need to take the time to go there, but in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus' brothers and mothers are insisting to see him, Jesus says this in verse 48, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? He looks at the believers and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. So we're going out of our way just a little bit to say, Mary uniquely gave birth to Jesus. Honorable. Esteemed. But Jesus ends up putting all believers in the same category as her if they believe in him and trust in him because we're all part of equal family with him. So a little bit of pushback. Then let's keep going. Verse 4 goes on to say, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to be doing these things. It's not time for me to draw all of this attention to myself. Okay? Okay? And Jesus does this with some frequency. He'll, he'll give the pushback and then he helps. And we're going to see that here. And exactly why and how that works, I don't know. It's kind of fascinating. So he sets the record straight and then he helps. But he doesn't help in the way they expected. So in this case, he's going to help. We're going to see that. But it's, it's hidden behind the scenes to the point where they, they don't know how it happened. Later on, the closer we get to the cross, everybody's going to know why it happened. Okay? But there's a time frame, there's a timetable. He is sovereignly in charge of what's going to happen at Calvary. My hour hasn't come, my time hasn't come. And that's used throughout John. 
my hour, the hour, culmination, typically tied to the cross work, atoning sacrifice, the, the climax of his work. Saying that, that's not yet. And I love us seeing this because it helps us to remember that Jesus wasn't merely murdered. He was murdered, but he was in charge. Everything that happens is happening not according to Mary or some other person or not happenstance or not bad luck or good luck. It's going to happen when it happens according to the ordained hour. Just to give you the quick one, John 7.30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 820, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 23, and Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, for this to all be obvious. John 12, 27, same thing, the hour. John 13, 1, same thing, the hour. John 17, 1, same thing, the hour specific timetable and I'm making a big deal out of it because we need to see that everything that happens to Jesus happens according to plan we're not there yet but we're even going to see that Jesus dialoguing with his father and praying with his father this is according to a plan that reaches back into eternity past father, son and holy spirit it's meant to be impressive if we read all of John. I know we're not reading all of John today, but woman, no, it's not my hour. And yet, behind the scenes, he performs a miracle. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. A little bit of a rebuke, but she has confidence in her son. Did I tell you we weren't going to stop after, after every verse? Well, I guess I was telling the truth in one sense because sometimes we're going to stop even before we're done with the whole verse. I don't want to read too much into this. So this might just be a coincidence. But the, the, the terminology that's used, the way she says this, do whatever he tells you is almost identical to what we hear in Genesis 41 with what Pharaoh says regarding Joseph. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says, do. Different translation. Some commentators at least want to say, is this on purpose? The salvation of the people physically, needs met, I don't know. Worth considering, thinking about. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So let's just say 150 gallons. 
Now, what I did is I made myself a note here, and I think it's worth you doing as well. Six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. The reason I made a note is because it's still fresh in my mind, chapter 1, regarding Moses coming and then Jesus coming. Something great, and then we have grace instead of grace. Mosaic law with all of its ceremonial kinds of things. Jesus, fulfillment puts an end to it. Again, we might be reading too much into this, but I don't think so. All of this water, Jewish rites of purification. It's Old Covenant-ish. No, it's Old Covenant. Jesus is going to come and He's going to turn the water that was in the pots made for Old Covenant stuff and He's going to turn it into wine. Oh, and we're going to see this, which is New Covenant-ish. If He's the coming Deliverer King, bringing prosperity, freedom, and joy, very much a theme in John is going to be, to put it in my vernacular, my terminology, out with the old, in with the new. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're out with the old and in with the new, especially if wine is on purpose and not just, let's make sure everybody has a happy time at the wedding. We'll get to that, I promise. Verse 7. Oh, we're going to do a few verses in a row. This will be fun. Okay, verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine. We've read that so many times, it's like no big deal, but it's like the water now become wine. And did not know where it came from. Ah, that, that keeps with what he said earlier, my hour hasn't come. So this is discreet. Not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. I don't get it, right? This is weird. This is socially backward. This is confusing. You don't know how to run a dinner party. I mean, I, we're reading into it, but this, this, this makes no sense. I suppose they're happy, though, that this happened, right? Provision has been made and everyone can save face. But this isn't how we do things. Which I actually think is helpful because it points to the fact that it's the extraordinary. This isn't how we normally do things. But if Jesus would have made two-buck chuck or whatever, <laughs> if you laugh, you're a wine drinker. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have made the garbage. So then it does make sense. But it doesn't make sense to the observer because he didn't know that Jesus did it. Verse 11. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Before we move on, let's state the obvious. Let's get excited about it. And then let's state the not as obvious if we don't know our Old Testaments very well. And let's get excited about that. Excitement phase one. (laughs) He did this, right? Real place, real time and space. And it manifested. It showed his glory, his, his significance, his greatness, his You can use all kinds of synonyms. His awesomeness. His extraordinariness. His glory. He put it on display in a kind of veiled way so not everyone would know because his hour hasn't come yet. But yet we're seeing the sign. We're seeing that this happened. That he did it. We're seeing this. Here's the thing to be excited about that is a good starting point. We're seeing that Jesus is supernatural. We're seeing that Jesus isn't a mere prophet. We're seeing that Jesus is is meant to be heard. And I don't want to downplay any of those things. Those things ought to be upplayed because that's part of the point. With me? Phase two of excitement. That should be exciting enough. Phase two of the excitement is, hold on a second. What's the association in the Old Testament with wine? What's the association in the Old Testament with wine? Well, there's all kinds of things. Drunkenness is wrong. We can go there and and talk about abuses and go to Proverbs. That's all true. But specifically, you have an emphasis on blessing from God, joy and rejoicing, provision from God, joy and rejoicing, And you specifically have a connection to the new covenant, okay? The day we're waiting for is when we don't run out of wine. The day we're waiting for is a time where there is celebration, where we, it's like every day is a festival, every day is a feast, and we don't have to worry about fighting wars, and we don't have to worry about all these other things, and famines, and all the complications of living life, especially there in the Middle East. But by application, we can understand the day is coming where everything will be set right. We, I think we need to see that. I think we need to see that not because we're trying to do weird things and find hidden meanings, but we already saw in chapter 20 that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the what? Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the ultimate deliverer, king that we were expecting from the Old Testament. I wrote these things, these things are recorded, including these signs and giving specific attention to detail. So you'd say, he's the Messiah. Messiah brings prosperity. That's what he does. So I'm reading it that way on purpose. As I'm reading through John in light of chapter 20, I'm looking for signs that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. Well, here's one. He takes ceremony, Moses, 
and replaces it with substance, significance. As one commentator put it, Jesus is the bringer of messianic joy who fills up the depleted resources of Judaism. Also, in Jewish thought, wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. The Babylonian Talmud, which I've never read in my life, um, but it's quoted by commentaries again and again and again. Here's a quote from ancient Judaism. There is no rejoicing save with wine. It's key. Okay, here we go. Texts. I'll just give you some rapid-fire texts. We're going a long way around to see Jesus is great. We all could agree to that, and he's even greater than we thought. Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine. What a figure of speech that is. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Oh, we're waiting for that day for these Israelites. Won't that be awesome? Celebration. Jeremiah 31, the classic New Covenant passage. Jeremiah 31, verse 12, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine and the oil, and over the young and of the flock and of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. No more difficulty. 13, Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Hosea chapter 14, verse 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. There's protection there from God. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. That's why commentators say the running out of wine at the Cana wedding may be symbolic of the barrenness of Judaism, perhaps, but it most certainly is symbolic of Jesus being the Mashiach, the Messiah, the one who brings joy and rejoicing and prosperity. A lot of that's used figuratively. So if you don't like wine, it's okay. Just read it all figuratively. At least in those Old Testament prophecies. And I'm being a little bit lighthearted, but I'm not, I'm not trying to push this to offend you about the here and now today. I'm trying to push this so you can see Jesus is the one who's connecting the dots. Messiah brings peace and prosperity and deliverance. Feasting, joy, rejoicing. You see? Does this make sense? If Jesus brings wine, Jesus is the Messiah. I've been talking a long time just to get to that. If Jesus is the one who brings the abundance of this wine, he's the Messiah. Therefore, he's the one who will return, right? And we're waiting for that. 
But while he's on earth, he's proving that he is the one. Again, this is weird, difficult perhaps to a 21st century fundamentalist. But it should be not weird for 21st century Christians. (laughs) Recovering fundamentalists we might be. But let's not miss an opportunity to see a sign that proves that Jesus is Messiah. And the wedding at Cana shows his power for sure. But it shows his power as Messiah, deliverer, expected, long-awaited, coming king. Is what it does. I have a funny story to tell you to bring some levity. I was at a, I was at a, like a reception or a banquet. I'm trying to think, what do I want to say and not say? Well, I, I, I was at a banquet for alumni at Master Seminary. And we were having a great time, hanging out, and eating, you know, chicken cordon bleu or whatever it is um, that you always eat. And R.C. Sproul was there. And R.C. Sproul spoke a little bit. And earlier in the day, there was a Q&A about wine. You know, it's not really wine and whatever it might be. So then R.C. Sproul, who's pretty funny, he's getting ready to leave. And he spoke at the banquet. He's getting ready to leave. I said, but, you know, and I can't imitate him and do, do it right. But, you know, and he's just in his gravelly kind of voice. And uh, he's kind of like Columbo. You know, he goes, I just have one question, he said. How are all you Baptists going to read the wine labels in, labels in heaven anyway? And he walked out. <laughs> it was funnier then. And people were offended, which I thought was super funny. Maybe there will be no wine labels in heaven. Maybe it won't be alcoholic, but there'd better be wine. Because if you get somewhere in the afterlife and there's no wine, you're not in heaven. Jesus even talks about not drinking again until he's in his kingdom with his disciples. So again, all joking aside, you can have whatever views you want to have on things, but please don't miss the fact that blessing from God in the Old Testament world, we're waiting for a day when we only receive blessing and we don't have any more war and we don't have any more conflict and we don't have any more difficulty, we don't have any more suffering, and symbolically, therefore, that will be the day of joy and rejoicing and that's when God will bless us abundantly and symbolic for sure, therefore, is wine. Jesus is better than we even think he is. For my whole life, I think I've read John chapter 2, and I've been impressed with Jesus, and I thought, he has the power to take water and make it wine. He's awesome. Phase one of excitement. The more you read your Bible, the more you read your Old Testament, the more you read your New Testament, you begin to see phase two of excitement. He's even better than I thought he was.
I got nothing else for you unless we go on to number two. And if we do, then we'll miss lunch. So what we need to do is we need to pray. Next week, we're going to go to the temple. We're going to have a journey there, but we need to pray and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But for now, we're going to, to stop. Father, thank you so much for today. And thank you for the fact that you sent your son, Jesus, and that time and time again, he did miracles that were signs, that were proofs that he is the long-awaited, anticipated one who will bring abundant blessing. And so may we be more encouraged by that than we've ever been before. May it cause us to even look to the future amidst our problems and know full well that Jesus, the one we call Savior, is the ultimate deliverer, and he indeed has the power to deliver us ultimately in the end and to pour out his blessings upon us. Help us to continue learning and growing. Help us to respond to our learning and growing, to to give you praise and devotion. May we find ourselves even having a desire to obey you like we hadn't before because you're worthy, because you're gracious, because you're a mighty Savior. And thank you, Lord, for this morning as we have an opportunity to obey Jesus and to eat and drink in remembrance of him. Thank you that because of what he's done, salvation is sure. And so as we eat and as we drink, may we find ourselves worshiping the risen Christ because his work is completed. And may we do so as an act of humble adoration and praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.